This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 28. And as you make your way to the 28th chapter of Job, I want to take a moment to remind you that we find ourselves in the middle of Job's final defense. And just to be clear, well, Job found himself in the middle of a heated discussion with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. It was back in the beginning of this book when we learned about the day when the Lord allowed an adversarial angel known as Satan to attack the family and the flocks and the flesh of his servant Job. Well, it was after losing his children, after losing his livestock, after losing his health, that Job's friends decided that they were going to come uh, to help their friend Job. And, and in, in maybe traveling or maybe considering the situation, they arrived at the conclusion that Job must be living in sin because why else would God punish him in all of these sorts of ways? And so it's for this reason that they traveled from their homes, all in the hopes that, that, that they might be able to counsel Job and that he might receive their counsel and then repent and return to the Lord. But rather than agreeing with their inaccurate assessment of his situation, Job defended himself against the accusations of his friends. And after going three rounds like a mental MMA match, well, that's when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar finally gave in to Job's persistent de- uh, defense And they finally just allowed him to present his final defense, and we find ourselves in the middle of that section of Scripture. I'll remind you that Job began his argument by first acknowledging the sovereignty of our Creator. And then it was in our text last week when Job shifted his attention from the exaltation of our Almighty God to the confusion that was causing him to conclude that the Lord was actually punishing him without a just cause. And yet we know that this wasn't the Lord's punishment, but rather the Lord allowing his faith to be put to the test. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Job once again shifting his attention, and he's now shifting his attention to the true wisdom, which can only come from the Lord. And as we consider the case that Job makes here in our text tonight, uh, we'd all do well to realize that the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge Well, these riches are received by those who will simply humble themselves and walk by faith with our almighty God. With this as the focus, let's pick up our study of this incredible book by turning our attention now to Job chapter 28. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here we read, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. They hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden he brings forth to light." Well, here in the first half of this chapter, we find Job, he's now describing 
the human ingenuity that enabled the post-flood people to engage in these mining operations, and this was taking place as early as the 21st century BC and even maybe even a little bit before that. And I'll remind you that Job, he was probably living during the days of Abraham, and some believe that he was probably even uh, living uh, even earlier than that. And as we consider his description of the mining operations which were already occurring there in his days, well, he's probably referring to the earliest mines that have been found in the region of ancient Mesopotamia and Israel. According to the Canada Institute of Mining, the first societies to use metals on large scale emerged in Mesopotamia and also in Egypt, where Egyptian copper mines were mostly concentrated in the Nubian Desert as well as in northern Sudan. And, and the Timna Valley uh, in modern Israel as well. That's where they've discovered huge underground operations with shafts up to 30 meters deep. Now, as we consider the timeline uh, of the book of Job, you might be interested to know that these ancient mining operations probably began to take place shortly after the flood of Noah. And so I can't help but to wonder if people right after the flood became interested in exploring the new geological strata which was laid down by the catastrophic event better known as the flood of Noah. You might not know this, but uh, the, you know, the earth is actually covered in fossil-bearing sedimentary layers which appear to be created by a cataclysmic event that created the geologic column which contains the fossil record. And listen, the greatest proof of my point here can be found in the fact that we find marine life fossils on the peaks of the tallest mountains in the world. If you climb to the tallest mountains in this world, you'll find marine life fossils up there. Now, what in the world is marine life? Where do these marine life fossils come from at the tops of the mountains? Here's how Dr. Andrew Snelling explains this. He declares, and I quote, The vast marine fossil bearing sedimentary layers we find spread right across the continents today are thus consistent with the ocean waters having flooded over the continents on a global scale, tearing marine creatures from their shallow ocean floor habitats and picking up sediments, then burying those creatures in those sediments up and across the continents in vast sedimentary layers. This is consistent with the biblical description of the flood. In other words, the evidence for Noah's flood that we find in the Bible can be found in the earth itself, we, we find this in the fact that we, there, are, there are fossils of marine life critters in the geological layers of sedimentary rock, which can actually be found across every continent on this planet. Therefore, it only stands to reason that every continent was at some point underwater. You know, at some point in time, this was all underwater. And, and, you know, evolutionists can come along and say, yeah, but the you know, tectonic plate shifted and pushed the mountains up and all that. Right, so it was just easier to flood before those mountains were formed. But the fact is that the tallest points of this earth contain marine life fossils. That cannot be denied. Not only that, but there's also good reason for us to believe that the entire geologic column was created by the same catastrophic event. Dr. Snelling actually presents us with six evidences of this in an article that he titled Geologic Evidences for the Genesis Flood. I wonder what this article is about. Let's see. In this article, he points to the following six proofs of Noah's flood, beginning with evidence number one, fossils of sea creatures found high above sea level due to the ocean waters having flooded over the continents. Uh, evidence number two, the rapid burial of plants and animals resulting in the fossil record. 
Evidence number three, rapidly deposited sediment layers that are spread across vast areas. Evidence number four, sediment transported long distances which were carried by fast-moving water. Evidence number five, rapid or no erosion between strata, which indicates the continuous deposition of one layer after another. And then finally, evidence number six, whole sequences of strata bent without fracturing, indicating that all the rock layers were rapidly deposited and folded while still wet and pliable before the final hardening. Now, as we consider these six pieces of evidence that... Uh, give us reason to believe in the flood of Noah, we can see here that the entire geologic column actually provides us with proof for the biblical account of the flood. And while the evolutionists want to say that all these sediments were laid down slowly but surely over the ages and, and, and critters died within, within these, these layers and, and, and slowly became fossils, and, no, no, no. Fossils, that, that's something that takes place rapidly. You know, it's buried rapidly, it decays rapidly, and leaves behind a nice pretty fossil, right? Well, so we should expect then for some sort of catastrophe, some sort of cataclysmic event, easy for me to say, a cataclysmic event to have laid down all of these critters, killed them, and then allowed them to fossilize in those layers. Sadly, though, many in the world today have been duped by secular professors who use circular reasoning rather than solid scientific observation. And the reason why is because uh, of their presuppositional commitment to Darwinian evolution. You see, they want to explain how we got here apart from God. That's their goal. They want to explain how we got here apart from special design by an uncreated creator. And so they have to make it, you know, from goo to you by way of the zoo, you know, with slow transitions all along the way. But there's not one transitional fossil, not a single one. And and they keep talking about this, you know, this one transitional form between some sort of ape-like ancestor and humanity. And we're not just looking for one transitional form. We need transitional forms between all of the critters. And yet there's not a single one, but they keep telling the story. Because in their minds, that if they can explain away God through Darwinian evolution, then they don't have to feel accountable for the day of judgment, right? And what's interesting to note, note is that this is exactly what the Bible tells us would happen. There's a post-Diluvian delusion which was prophetically revealed back in the first century. And we find this in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's here where the apostle Peter declares, Beloved, I now write you in this second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, check it out. Scoffers will come in the, when? In the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, we're questioning the second coming. Why? Well, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget. They willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with Water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, here in this prophecy, we find Peter, he's describing the last days as a time when scoffers will deny the flood of Noah. 
They're going to deny the, the fact that the earth perished being flooded with water, which is found in the story of Noah. And, that, and that's exactly what's happening now in our public schools as grade school teachers and college professors continue presenting our kids with the circular reasoning of evolutionary science. And, and when it comes to dating rocks, you know, they use the rock to date the fossil, then they use the fossil to date the rock, and this is just circular reasoning which proves absolutely nothing at all. And it's sad that there are so many who have been deceived by the, the priests of secular scientism, uh, which is, is not the same as science. Scientism is a religious system which is you know, basically uh, built upon the, the, the theory of evolution or Darwinian evolution. And, and as a result, you know, there are many who no longer believe in the coming day of judgment, which will occur at the time when Jesus returns. Why? Well, because they've been duped into rejecting the book of Genesis. And and listen, there are Christians in the church that are helping with this. There are Christians in the church even that will reject Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 7, and they'll reject the creation account, they'll reject the flood. Well, why would anybody believe in the second coming of Christ? If we can't believe in Genesis chapter 1 and we can't believe in Genesis chapter 7, then why why would we believe in Revelation chapter 19? If we allow our teachers and our professors to convince our kids that the flood is a fairy tale, then won't they also believe that the second coming is also a fairy tale? Is it any wonder why our kids are falling away from the faith as we spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to send them off to colleges where professors are telling them that the Bible's not true? Christian, listen, if you want to help your kids to escape the deception of secular science, I'm not talking about good science, I'm talking about secular science, the science that disagrees and, 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 and rejects God at, at, at Jump Street and then proceeds to attempt to make sense of the world without God. If you want to help your kids avoid this deception of secular science, then you should provide them with the good scientific evidence that helps us to see that we can actually trust the biblical record of both the flood and the creation account. And listen, we not only have good scientific reasons for believing in a literal flood, but we also have good biblical reasons for believing in a literal flood as well as Noah. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 24. There the Lord Jesus declares, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. According to the Lord Jesus Christ, and who would know if Jesus doesn't? Uh, if Jesus is saying that there, was, there were days of Noah and a worldwide flood, then shouldn't we take his word for it? I believe so. The Lord Jesus tells us that the global flood that occurred during the days of Noah is a fact of history. And I don't care how many secular scientists you line up to tell me that it's not true. Listen, there's a good scientific reason to believe in the flood. The geologic column and the fossil record is evidence. And there's a good biblical reason to believe that the story of Noah is not a fairy tale, but it is literal history. That being the case, we can also be certain that the second coming of Christ It's also going to take place according to the prophetic promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, rather than handing our kids over to the secular priests of scientism, 
I, I encourage you to let's provide them with the biblical and the scientific arguments that they need, which will help them to see that true wisdom is actually found within the word of God. And if you're wondering where to start with all this, if you're, if you're wondering how, how to help your kids to learn good science, well, you might check out answersingenesis.org. It's an excellent website. Also, icr.org, which stands for the Institute of Creation Research. Both of those websites are excellent starting points to go and find resources that can help you to help your kids learn good science that actually is in line with the Bible. Well, sadly, it didn't take long after the flood for mankind to set aside the worship of the Almighty so that they might spend their time pursuing the earthly wealth that was buried there in the ground. And seeing how Job was living in that post-Diluvian world, well, it's no wonder that he took his time to question that wisdom that was leading the people to spend all of their time searching this new strata for all the treasures that were buried by the flood. And after applauding their ingenuity, which enabled them to start searching for silver and gold as well as iron and ore, he went on to question the wisdom of those who were actually falling into this trap that uh, tends to enslave those who worship at the altar of worldly wealth. And while it's true that they were smart enough to mine the treasures of this earth, they weren't wise enough to search for the true treasures, which are found by those who truly trust in the Lord. I want to consider how Job puts it here in our text tonight. And so if you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 8. I want to focus your attention, beginning at verse 12. There he asks, but where can wisdom be found? So remember, he's talking about the wisdom that has helped all these people to to mine the the new strata and find all this precious metal and, and common metal and these sorts of things. And now he's asking, where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry or fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. To, uh, the topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's helping his friends to understand that there's a wisdom that is far better than any business acumen. That there's a wisdom that is more important than you know going and getting your degree uh, at, at the best colleges in the world. There's a wisdom that can't be purchased with gold or silver. There's a wisdom that can't be, you know, just you can't just go down to, to the store. You can't just put it in your shopping cart on Amazon and, and, and get it to your house as quickly as, as possible. No, no. This is a wisdom that is otherworldly. And to sum up, you know, Job's point here with all simplicity, you can be the wealthiest person in the world and yet still fail to acquire the wisdom that can only be received by those who have a faith-based relationship with the Lord. I like the way that Paul explains it in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, where he declares this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? 
or who has become his counselor. From this we can see that the wisdom and the knowledge of God contain riches that are unsearchable. You can't just search it out. We can't just open up a shaft here in the earth and find wisdom and knowledge in the earth below us. You you won't find the wisdom and knowledge of God there. And listen, you can unearth all the treasures of this earth and still lack the ability to purchase the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Thankfully for us, though, the, the Lord is ready to enrich us with his wisdom. He's ready to enrich us with his knowledge if we would simply approach him in the humility of faith. And this is precisely the point that James was making in James chapter 1. It's there where James declares, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Christian, listen, those who will simply ask God for the wisdom we need will receive it so long as we ask by faith. So long as we're asking according to the faith that we've placed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord has promised to give us the wisdom that we need. I like the way that the Lord put it in Jeremiah chapter 33. It's verse 3 where he declares, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. I love that. The Lord is ready to provide us with the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, providing that we're ready to make sure that we're humbly walking by faith. And with this as the goal, it's crucial for every Christian to learn how to be content with what the Lord has already provided. And here's how Paul explains this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's there where he declares, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things." According to Paul, it's the love of money that causes us to worship at the altar of worldly wealth. It's not money, it's not having money, it's the love of money. The love of money causes us to worship at the altar of worldly wealth. And it's sad to say that there are many believers whose lives have fallen apart because they put the pursuit of worldly wealth above their commitment to Christ. They put their job first. They put the the need for a a bigger paycheck first. And and oftentimes the reason why is because, well, our eyes were bigger than our our bank account and we went and bought things we couldn't afford and now we are under this pressure to pay for the things that we purchased that we couldn't afford in the first place. And so it's like, well, God's not giving me the money I greedily need and so I have to go and and, and work harder and work more hours and start missing church and these sorts of things. And listen, it, this is a path that will lead people astray. Please trust me when I tell you that your wise thinking in 
acquiring more money is not so wise after all. You can, you can drill down into the earth and dig all the shafts that you want to go and find gold and silver, but it won't give you real wisdom that would keep you walking with the Lord by faith. No, it's a path that leads us astray. And, and, and Paul says that many have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Why? Because they loved worldly wealth more than they loved the, the Lord. Knowing that the love of money results in the bondage of idolatry, I encourage every Christian to make sure that we're keeping Christ first in our lives so that we can then walk in the true wisdom of the Lord. I want to consider how Job puts it here in our text tonight. So if you would, look with me again here at Job chapter 28. We'll pick up our study at verse 20. Here Job asks, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, We have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way. And he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed. He searched it out. And to a man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Now here in the final paragraph of this chapter, we find Job, he's continuing to point to the Lord as the source of true wisdom. As a matter of fact, you know, if we cut, you know, through the fluff here, we look back at verse 20, and there Job asks, where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? And then jumping forward to verse 28, he answers the question by declaring, behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. I love that. It's so simple. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and departing from evil is understanding. The true wisdom that provides us with the understanding that we need, it is received by those who will respectfully submit themselves to the authority of the Lord. I like the way that King Solomon expands on this in Proverbs chapter 1. In Proverbs 1, we we see Solomon kicking off the book of wisdom here by declaring this. He says, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Listen, those who want to walk in the true wisdom of the Lord, we must make sure that we have a heart that respectfully reveres our Redeemer. Then, as we humbly walk in the fear of the Lord, We can rejoice in knowing that the Lord is going to provide us with the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. He helps us to increase in learning through the instruction that comes from his holy word. In this way, the Lord helps us to become those believers 
who continue to keep Christ first in our lives because that really is walking in the fear of the Lord. If you really want to walk in the fear of the Lord, then it's a matter of putting Christ first. And listen, if you're the one who's coming to Christ with your instructions for what you expect of him, that's not wisdom. If you're looking for God to answer your prayer according to the way you want it answered, well, that's not wise. That's you trying to convince God that your will is correct rather than his. We would do well to humbly walk with the Lord with, with the simple prayer, not as I will, but your will be done in my life. I like the way that James explains all this in the third chapter of his epistle. It's there where he asks, who is wise and understanding among you? That's a good question for us here tonight. Which one of us are truly wise? I'm a wise guy. I know that. But which one of us are truly wise? Which one of us truly have understanding? And then James answers, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here in these verses, we find James, he's helping his audience to understand the difference between the so-called wisdom of this world and the true wisdom that actually comes from the Lord. And according to James, the so-called wisdom of this world, it's sensual and it's demonic. And it's a wisdom that leads us to an envious, self-seeking existence. It's a narcissistic you know, approach at life. And it results in confusion and every other evil thing. That's not true wisdom. The, the wisdom that would lead us to seek our own desires, the, the wisdom that would lead us to live a life of envy, envying what other people have, the things that we wished we had but don't, and so we begin to envy what other people have the wisdom that would lead us to live a sensual life with demonic desires. This is not real wisdom. Conversely, the wisdom that comes from the Lord, well, according to James, it's first pure. In other words, the wisdom of the Lord is true and with all certainty. And not only that, but the wisdom that comes from God is peaceable, gentle, and willing to yield. And just to be clear, this is not a wisdom that results in path, pacifism. So, so I don't think that James is saying that if you're truly wise, then you'll be a pacifist. I don't think that's the case here. I mean, there, there are times for just wars. So we're not referring to a, a, a pacifist faith or, or wisdom, but rather the wise person prefers peace while remaining ready to defend ourselves against those who prefer war. 
If I prefer peace and you prefer peace, then we can be at peace. But if I prefer peace and you prefer war, and I go, yeah, but I prefer peace, well, guess who wins? The person who prefers war. Well, why would God want that to stand? So we should be ready, we should be those who are wisely preferring peace over war, but if the other party prefers war, well, then we have to engage in a just war with those who are making war until they're ready to make peace. And so if you want to know my opinion about what's happening there in Israel, there it is. Those who want to make peace should make peace until they find themselves face-to-face with someone who prefers war. And then, well, you've got to deal with that until there's true peace. And that's how we should live our lives. We should prefer peace. We shouldn't be Christians who are trying to stir it up. We shouldn't be Christians who are trying to you know, have you know, conflict with other people. We shouldn't be those Christians who are looking for every opportunity to cause conflict. No, we should prefer peace. But when we find ourselves with, you know, face-to-face with those people who don't want to make peace, well, we've got to deal with it. We should also be gentle, according to James. The, the wisdom of God would lead us to be gentle and willing to yield. And, and, and listen, you know, don't, don't apply this to, to the roundabouts that they're starting to put here in Austin. You, know. you should be willing to yield, but please, don't stop. You've you got to thread in. You've got you to work yourself in there. I, I, and, and don't get me started on Austin drivers. So I prefer peace. I prefer peace. I prefer peace. But if you don't know how to use roundabouts, use other streets, please. So back to the study. Listen, willing to yield speaks of those who are ready to work with others. But that doesn't mean that we sit back and idly remain silent as we see false teachers leading people astray. That's not the time to yield. We're not to yield to false doctrine. We're not to yield to false teachers. We're not to yield to these sorts of things. We have to take a stand for truth when we find ourselves face-to-face with these false teachers. But at the same time, we need to be willing to yield to the truth of God's word. You see, this is the sort of wisdom that comes from God, and, and it's a wisdom that not only enables us to be gentle and willing to yield while standing for the truth, but it's also a wisdom that helps us to be full of mercy and good fruits, which is to say that we're ready to be merciful to the repentant so that we might bear the fruits of love with those who will re- repent and return to the Lord. At the same time, uh, you know, we are to judge with righteous judgment rather than partiality and hypocrisy because the wisdom that comes from God is not about partiality. You know, we are not to look at another person and just by the way they dress or, or, or the lineage of their blood or the area of town they live in or anything. We're not to judge people based on those things. And we're not to judge people hypocritically as to judge another person who is living in sin when we ourselves struggle with the same sin. That would be partial or hi- hypocritical. Uh, but instead, we're, we're supposed to judge with righteous judgment because that is the wisdom of God. And to sum all of this up with simplicity, listen, the wisdom that comes from God is demonstrated in the lives of those who are producing the fruit of righteousness, which is sown in peace by those who make peace. With this as the goal, you know, I I want to remind you that uh, you can't dig down into the earth and unearth the wisdom of God. It's not it's not in the earth. We 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 can't, you know, shoot 
SpaceX shuttles to the moon and find the wisdom of God there on the moon. You know, the, the wisdom of God is given to those freely who will simply humble themselves before the Lord. And with this as the goal, we'd all do well to, to test the wisdom that is driving our decisions. Are we walking in the wisdom of this world, which, you know, is self-seeking and sensual and demonic, or are we walking according to the wisdom of the Lord, which we receive when we humbly submit our lives to him? Let's make sure that we're walking in the wisdom of the Lord as we continue to fight the good fight of faith for the glory of God.